and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am delighted to have John McCaskill on this. John was a commander in the US Navy. He served with the Navy SEALs, began as a, a rigger, as a, almost like an enlisted man in the Navy, looking after the parachutes for the F-18s, um, and then got selected because he was clearly leadership talent to uh, become an ensign, a second lieutenant, as we would call it in the British Army. And um, then went on to do Hell Week and passed and got through Navy SEAL training and was in various SEAL team units, including SEAL Team 10. And now, um, post his time in the Navy, he runs a, a variety of different things he does. But one is his company, which is Frogman Mindfulness, which we're going to talk about as well. We've really had a ball in just the short space of time we've chatted. I feel there's so much, John can share with his wisdom and experience, his humility, uh, the lessons he's learned and all that went on. So without further ado, John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great having you on board. And uh, you, you also love doing podcasts and you, you're, you're on social media a lot. What's your, just let us know, is, is it uh, Men Talking Mindfulness? Is that, is that your right. podcast? That is my podcast and we have a lot of fun on it. It's uh, we pride ourselves on our rawness, our authenticity, and uh, and quite frankly, sometimes that, that rawness and authenticity comes through as being crude, but we, we try to just have some fun with it. Well, I'm looking forward to joining you on that. We can have some good more. <laughs> we'll carry on the banter. There's much more we can talk about. So um, we were talking before about uh, there's so many different inspiring leaders that you've had the good fortune to serve alongside, be led by you. Know, I mean, like me, you've met some which are ghastly, the, the, the old psychopaths <laughs> and, the, and the guys who misuse their their positions of authority, both in business and in the military. But uh, there were two that you mentioned that you have found uh, inspiring. Would you like to mention them by name and, and what qualities you admire? Yeah, absolutely. The The first one I actually met when I was a, a young lieutenant junior grade. So, you know, first lieutenant equivalent um, there in the in your, your Brit army. Um, and his name is Josh Lasky. He was uh, a lieutenant, so one rank above me. And uh, initially, I was impressed by his professionalism and his humility. And then I got to work for him years later when I was his operations officer over in Afghanistan. And he was the SEAL Team 10 commanding officer. And uh, at this point, now he's working. Now he's wearing commander, so lieutenant colonel equivalent. And he again, was very professional, very humble, had a beginner's mindset or a growth mindset, and never used his authority to demean or undermine. Um, he always made us as his um, junior officers and, and the enlisted men and women that worked for him, made us feel like we were one team, one family. 
Um, he has stayed in the Navy and he has since put on uh, a star. So he's a rear admiral in the in the U.S. Navy and, and specifically within the Naval Special Warfare community over here. <clears throat> and then the uh, the second one is a guy who worked for me. Uh, his his name is Mike Provost. He was uh, chief warrant officer within the Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewman community, which is the other arm of Naval Special Warfare here in the States. So within Naval Special Warfare, you have the Navy SEALs, and then you have the Special Warfare Com Combatant Craft Crewmen, who I think have recently renamed themselves Special Warfare Combatant Crewmen instead of Combatant Craft Crewmen. So they they were the when I was in, they were the high speed boat drivers. They did missions on their own. They did missions with us as the SEALs. And uh, and Mike was the epitome of a professional. Um, again, he worked for me. So he was junior to me in rank and he worked directly for me, but he never uh, made it as though there was a distinction between the two of us. He came to me and said, hey, that you know, he still called me sir and addressed me professionally, but he made me realize when I was making a call that was questionable, or he brought his insights and um, expertise to the table and gave me the opportunity and the ability to make better decisions and better calls. Uh, so, Chief Warrant Officer Mike Provost, that's a call out to you. Great mm. guy, one of the, one of the best that I ever worked for, and uh, I consider. Even though he was junior to me, I did do consider that I worked for him. Yeah, it, it is lovely the the relationships in the armed services when you've got good warrant officers and good officers working together. Um, there's there's a wonderful bond now. The the, the the real experience in the years and the age is probably with the warrant officers and the senior NCOs. They're the ones who run the organization. Absolutely. The officers just think they do, and uh, <laughs> and and you've had that special. Uh, privilege of beginning as an enlisted man, knowing what it's like looking from that side of the table to good officers and bad ones, good sergeants, NCOs, corporals and bad ones. And therefore, I do think my experience with, uh, I mentioned my friend Rod Thomas, who began as a, a signalman in the Royal Signals uh, and left as a, a corporal to become an officer, trained with me at Sandhurst 43 years ago. We're just having our reunion and uh, then finished up as a, uh, as a colonel. And I, and I think it gives you that perspective and respect for different ranks and knowing what works and what doesn't. Uh, I think of the first day I reported to my first duty after uh, uh, passing out as a second lieutenant, being terribly pleased with myself. And um, I marched into the office of Captain uh, Buckley, uh, Ian Buckley, who'd been in the commandos uh, as, a, as a sergeant and then as a warrant officer in the Royal Signals, that side of it. Uh, been in Borneo and all sorts of places. And I, I came in, I drove in my feet and saluted him and said, Second Lieutenant Perks reporting for duty, sir. I don't know much about the army. Will you teach me? And he said, boy, he said, I thought I had some, excuse the expression, I had some shit from Sandhurst who was up his own rear end. He said, but you got the right kind of attitude. I'm going to look after you. And he took me off. And we, our first thing was we went to the pub. <laughs> and we got very drunk together and uh, he he made sure I got a good night's sleep. And he said, tomorrow morning for the run at six o'clock, you're there at 530. You lead the guys. You never breathe a word about being out on the town. You just lead by example, look after your men and care for them. And, it, and he sort of gave me that perspective of how soldiers want to be led. And 
it never left me. Um, and oh, the other thought I had, which I just want to, before I pass back to you with any thoughts and reminiscences, was the way that non-commissioned officers and warrant officers say, sir, there's so many variations. <laughs> in sir. Yes. There's like, <laughs> yes, sir. Or yes, sir. Right. Or when they're training me on airborne training and I'm l- dragging some soldier at the back and they come on, sir, give up, <laughs> just ring the bell, as it were, you know, right. just get on the jack wagon. You're never going to make it. You're not good enough, sir. And right. because they don't mean it at all, do they? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember very clearly, you know, having been enlisted um, and then going through the Naval Academy, I when I was at the academy, I could not wait until I graduated and got called ensign for the first time. And I graduated and I walked back to the Naval Academy from the graduation, which happens just off campus. And there was a young Marine at the gate and he and he salutes me. And he's like, good morning, ensign. And, I was like, <laughs> and that was the first time I got called ensign. I was like, oh, wow, that sounds like a derogatory term the way you're saying it. <laughs> Uh, and and after that after that i hated being called ensign (laughs) yeah yeah. i just remember you and i were talking about the gurkhas and my friend general himalaya tapper who's coming over for the reunion and and you'd been to nepal and uh such amazing strong soldiers and 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 on guard duty you don't want to mess with them they have a cookery and if they draw their cookery they really should draw blood so so that they they nick their finger uh, just to, to have done it before they sheath it again. Anyway, we were out with one of the uh, the staff sergeants and uh, we came back to the barracks and he'd lost his identity card. Hmm. And he was one of the instructors and we were all the young officers. And he went, don't worry, he said, I'll get us in. And he goes up to the Gurkhas, hello, Johnny Gurkha, let us in. You know me, Color Sergeant Jenkins. And he goes, ID card, ID card, please. Uh, no, I haven't got my ID card, but you know me. <laughs> no id card no come in no 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 come on you know me and he starts to walk past and the guy pulled his cookery and he prodded it underneath his nose no id card no come in you fucking <laughs> deaf no 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 okay, okay. i'll tell you what i'll go around the other way i'll go to the other gate. so um yeah i think about how uh you meet people on the gate and how they treat you but look um Thank you for those two recommendations uh, of two awesome uh people who have inspired you john and uh for you and all that you've done to be inspired, they have to be pretty damn good. Um, interesting experience. You born in Cape Town, uh, South Africa, uh, British, Scottish heritage, I seem to remember. But who influenced you as you were growing up and, and led to you becoming this leader you are now and a social media phenomena and in charge <laughs> of all that. Uh, no, but the, the Frogman Mindfulness. I think you're great, real, genuine, authentic social media presence but uh, yeah who who influenced you uh john yeah uh i i think you know i'd be remiss if i didn't say my parents mm-hmm. uh right off the bat um you know when they were my age or even a little bit younger than i am now they picked five children up and moved them from south africa where they had grown up they were born and raised there and went back several generations on both sides picked five kids up and moved them to the states and specifically moved us to the southern area of the states, a small town called Ruston, Louisiana, um, which was culture shock for all of us. And But they were brave enough to do it, and they were doing it for us. They weren't doing it for themselves. They were doing it for us, the five children. Um, so definitely my parents are a big part in influencing, uh, I believe, who I am and and 
the leader that I, the leadership that I try to imbue. Mm. Um, that said, you know, narrowing down, uh, my father, um, had a very, very profound impact specifically, um, on my integrity. Uh, I remember one instance growing up, um, I was a track and cross country runner and I'd had one race that was particularly successful. Uh, I'd won this race and, uh, you know, I'd set, uh, set a new record and I, the next day it was in the newspaper. Somebody told me that it was in the newspaper. And this is back in the day when you, you would get a newspaper by putting a coin in the machine, open the machine and take one newspaper. Well, I went and put one coin in the machine and I grabbed a stack of newspapers and I walked back to the car with this stack of newspapers. And I jump in the passenger seat. And my dad says, what, what did you just do? And I said, I got some newspapers. And he said, how many coins did you put in there? I said, one. You know, this is back when the newspaper was 25 cents, I think it was one quarter here in the States. And I said, uh, just put one in. And he's like, well, how many newspapers do you have? And I had like 10. And he's like, well, you got to go back and pay for those other newspapers. And so he gave me nine more quarters to go back and put them back into the machine. And it showed me the, the integrity that my father had and that integrity is something once you give it away, you never get, you never get it back. Yeah. Um, and I carry that small little lesson forward with me for, for the rest of my life. Um, and I still, still mention that story to him every once in a while. And, and he, it didn't really register with him as a big lesson, but it was a small thing that went a long way with me. Um, and then, and then my high school track and cross country coach, he was, uh, like my second father and I still stay in close touch with him to this day. Um, you know, he put me through some of the most brutal training that I'd ever gone through. Um, and I look back on that as developing a foundation for my, my grit, my resilience, my tenacity, and the, the ability to do hard things, which I think is critical in becoming a, an effective leader is not only asking your people to do hard things, but being able to do them and being willing to do them yourself. Um, so I think he was absolutely uh, a huge part in developing my my leadership. Mm. And and that, of course, ni nicely ties us over to you must have been slightly insane to then go to Hell Week. And for those who haven't um, followed any of the the many um, uh, books and and films about Navy SEAL training, which has become quite legendary these days. Um, what is Hell Week and what was the SEAL, what stood out for you in your SEAL training as sort of moments of lessons learned from tough, um, tough selection, psychological sure. stuff they were doing to you? Yeah. So we the order of the when you go, it's called Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, DS for short. And these uh, these three helmets that are stacked on uh, the table beside me. Can you still hear me, Jonathan? Because it said my internet is unstable. Hopefully, you can. Yeah. So Hell Week is the the fourth or the fifth week of Navy SEAL training, and it's become somewhat infamous. So Navy SEAL training is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It's BUDS, B-U-D-S. 
uh, that you may have heard of in the past. Mm -hmm. And these three helmets that are behind me, that those are actually my my buds training helmets. And buds is is six months long. It's divided into three phases. the The first phase is kind of the weeding out phase. It's the physical check it's kind of physical gut check and second phase is dive phase which as the name implies you learn how to dive and third phase you learn how to blow stuff up and shoot move and communicate which is a lot of fun and hell week falls again the fourth or fifth week depending on which class you go through um of of that first phase and um we started hell week or rather we started buds with 181 guys and then we started hell week four weeks later on February 3rd, 2002, it was Super Bowl Sunday here in the States. Um, we started that with 108 guys. So at this point, we've lost 73 guys before Hell Week starts. And Hell Week is five days of basically nonstop physical training. You're running around with logs, you're running around with boats, you're getting in the water, swimming, um, doing obstacle courses, uh, crawling in the sand, doing push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, you're continually wet um, and it's it's miserable. You eat four times a day um, because you are up the whole time, except for about three hours midweek where you get to sleep, quote unquote, sleep on these cots that are laid out on the beach. It's not really good sleep because you know uh, Hell Week, the rest of Hell Week is still coming. So basically you just lay there uh, anxious, ready for the second half of Hell Week to, to continue and uh, we finished Hell Week that Friday afternoon, um, later in February. And again, we had started with 108 guys and we finished with 24. Wow. And that, to me, as far as the the leadership, the the foundation of the, the leader that I believe I, I am, a couple of things there. One, I believe those who make it through Hell Week are leaders already leaders of themselves and leaders of others. You have to lead yourself first before you can lead others. And I think the the mindset to make it through Hell Week, having resilience, having the grit, having uh, prepared for Hell Week, that makes you a leader. And then Hell Week just further hones that for people. So you come out uh, a more refined leader than you went in and, you know, fast forward even further through the rest of SEAL training, which is the the six months there and the rest of the six months in BUDS. And then you go through SEAL qualification training, which is like the gentleman's BUDS where you, where you actually start to learn the stuff that you're going to be doing in the SEAL teams. It's no longer a weeding out process. Now it's a true training process. The, uh, when you get through those two courses together, you show up at your SEAL team with your with your badge, your SEAL badge, which we call the Trident. And when you show up there, now you are a leader, or at least I, I would consider 95% of the men that show up at the SEAL teams to be leaders already by the time they get there. And the, the honing process, and we'll talk about this later, the honing and refining process of leaders never stops. I think you're continually growing as a leader and continually refining your your goals, your aspirations, your leadership techniques, and your experience builds upon all those. Um, so that's a little bit about Hell Week and how it laid the uh, the foundation for how I led in the SEAL teams and, and since. Yeah, and, and really fascinating. And um, when I... I'm, 
my own selection for airborne selection in the British Army was nothing like as grim as that, but it had its own version. And much of the battle to get through and get your parachute wings and your Marimberi was this idea of mental toughness as well as physical toughness, that they were often playing with your mind. I remember a classic case where, you know, it's often the case that you'd be running up some hill with your pack and your rifle and all that kind of stuff, and then down again, and then up the hill again, and then down again. And then they'd go, let's take a rest. And then they everybody sort of sit in the grass. They go, but not the officers. You just keep going doing it. And the lads are just watching. <laughs> so the officers were going round the hill, around the hill, while the soldiers were having a break. Right. And then we'd come back and they go, right, let's go off again. Now. And as soon as you just arrive and, and we're off again. And and you sort of remember that. And then this idea of of just seeing if they could break you. And, and what um, had you got when the tank was empty? So we were running up one particular hill on a 10 miler with all our kit. And they had chefs at the top with, with a tablecloth and beans, <laughs> sausages and bacon all laid out. Now, I think this wasn't organized this way. I just think one of the instructors was really pushing, uh, uh, trying us out because we were supposed to get breakfast at this stage. But he he came up and he kicked the table over. So the beans and all the stuff spread oh all goodness. over the stones and the sand and the dirt. The chefs looked pretty shocked because they weren't expecting that. Sure. And he goes, you lot haven't worked hard enough to deserve breakfast. And the enemy are about to attack right now. So you can't have breakfast. Keep running. Wow. Because the enemy don't decide, oh, no, you're tired. John, take a break. You know, have some breakfast. You've been you've been working hard, mate. You know, haven't had much sleep. Sorry, don't attack Russians yet. Just wait a bit. You know, come later <laughs> when we've had a sleep. And 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 it's the same kind of thing on on buds with this lack of sleep, which of course is hugely detrimental to anybody not having any sleep. You can't think. Right. You just start to be utterly dysfunctional. But of course, in combat or in operations, there there is no kindness. There is no. There is no quarter given. I mean, what any thoughts that you have about that? Because, you know, we do need all our sleep and recovery and our food and that kind of stuff. What was what thoughts do you have? Right. No, I think that's uh that's actually a great point. And you know, it translates outside of the battlefield too, right? If uh if you're a leader of a company, there's a, somebody else leading another company that is pushing past the five o'clock, you know, closing bell or uh, you know, that they're working earlier in the morning than you. Um, and I will also, I will temper that in that I believe in working hard. I do, but I don't believe in working past the point of diminishing or even negative returns. And once you start working you, yourself or your people past that point, then, then that's when you start getting burnout. That's when you start to actually develop a toxic culture. Um, but I do believe in working very, very hard as as an individual and as an organization and i remember in my gym back uh in san diego there was a, a poster up on the the wall that said something to the effect of you know somewhere in the world is a man who does who is training nonstop, who doesn't rest when they get tired they continue training who doesn't know the definition of working hours whose pack is as heavy as his pack is. It's not as, you know, it's, it's not 25 pounds or 35 pounds. It's whatever it weighs. It is what it is. And that person is training to kill you. Um, and when I re read that, I was like, oh, that's true. There really is someone out there because I'm in the military profession. I'm in the profession of arms. 
that there are people who are training on the other side of this planet to kill me and my men. Mm. So we have to continue to train hard. So it's, it sounds as though I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because I'm saying, hey, you need to train hard, but you also need to identify when you're reaching that point of diminishing returns. And that's critical. I think as a leader, see when you, your people are starting to get worn out and what you're doing is no longer benefiting them. And then you give them the time off. And at that point, I think you can actually start to be better by taking your foot off the gas just for a, just for a moment, recovering and then working out again or recovering and then training again, you're going to get that much more out of it. So you have yeah. to train hard, but you also have to rest when you're exhausted. This is a really interesting area, particularly, and it's nice that you tie it back to the business leaders who are listening into this, because that's the 90% of the audience's business leaders, but there's the 10% who are military or ex-military who uh, wouldn't understand that, but majority won't. But I, I think it's fine that we did these selection courses where they pushed us to the utter limit to know what you can do. However, that's not the way to run your unit once you're on operations, because then people die. Right. Or if you're training in the gym, my personal trainer, who's from South Africa, actually, very enough, from Cape Town, uh, he, he is a god. The man uh, played for Tottenham Hotspur as a young player, and, and he has a physique like a... Uh, like the Black Panther on that uh, that uh, Mar <laughs> Marvel film. He's just phenomenal guy. <laughs> but um, he was saying to me, he gets very worried. There's a lady in his gym and she just does like five classes a day and she trains every day, every week. And he mm -hmm. said, she's going around with bandages and all sorts of, you know, tubi grip on her arm and her knees. Right. She's getting so many injuries. And so he said, it becomes counterproductive. Recovery Absolutely. and rest and recovery. In fact, that was one of my my sort of uh, Instagram posts today. We need this time to rest and recover so that we can come back fully recharged. So, yes, yeah. in a selection, that's fine. But then once you're in the unit and you're doing it, the guys have got to be in tip top shape. And and as we see with you know NFL football players and uh, top sportsmen, they all have their power naps in the afternoon and good amount right. of sleep at night. They don't go, I'm going to just work all day and have two hours sleep and then expect to perform well on the pitch. Or businessmen who push themselves so hard. There's a lovely quote, and you being a father, we'll come back to this in a minute. <laughs> but the quote goes this, 20 years from now, the fact that you worked till late at night and all the weekends doing your emails, no one will remember that, but your Except children your will. Your children. Yeah. I, I posted on that not too long ago, Jonathan. I uh, remember. I, I, yeah, it's it's so accurate. Um, and, you know, I, I believe that you, you mentioned you're going to – you're going to physically burn out, mm. right? You mentioned this this lady in the gym that's doing five workouts a day, right? To grow your muscles, to grow your strength, you have, you're breaking your muscles down in the gym. And then the growth happens in the rest period. Well, the same thing with your brain, your mind is that you're, you're growing, maybe not physiologically growing, but you're, you're growing your knowledge in the day, in your workouts, quote unquote, but then that all that knowledge is retained by developing long-term memory in sleep and rest periods. And if you do not do that, you're not going to be effective physically, but you're also not going to be effective mentally. As a leader, you have to have that, that foundation of cognitive rest so that you can understand what you're asking your people to do 
And you also have to set the example. A lot of the time as a leader, we will say, hey, everybody take vacation, take time off, but then we will burn the midnight oil and we will be there first thing in the morning and we won't take vacation. Well, guess what they're going to do? They're not going to do what you ask them to do. They're going to do what you're, what you're doing. They're going to follow your lead. So when we're wanting our people to take time off, we have to take time off and it's good for them for us to take time off, but it's also good for us. Yeah, it's it's so true. People are learning what you do. They're learning you, particularly your children. I mean, your children are, yes. I still remember you said uh, two, four, and six. They're learning what dad does or what mum does. And you can say all these fine words, but they just watch and they go, ah, oh, that's the way things are done. It's like the culture. And you were talking right. about that. We talk about the book on culture later. That's the way things are done around here. Right. Uh, we're going to talk about mindfulness, which is, of course, a big, a big thing for both sure. of us, but particularly for you in a moment. But let's just touch on some other experiences and a few other thoughts I had. Darkest moment, John, in your life or your personal work and what it taught you, because you're always a, a lifelong learner. What's the darkest moment? Yeah, I, I don't know that I can say darkest moment. I'll say darkest period. Yeah. Um, okay. And I think that darkest period uh, started June 28th, 2005. Uh, I was involved in the, the Red Wings operation uh, over in Afghanistan. The Red Wings operation, for those who are not familiar, is the the lone survivor story with oh, right. just the trail. And uh, we, we lost 19 service members that day. So 11 Navy SEALs and eight Army Night Stalkers. Now, I didn't know the Army Night Stalkers very well. They're the the air crew of a CH-47 that was shot down by a rocket-propelled grenade. On that, on that CH-47, we had the eight Army Night Stalkers and how many? Uh, eight, eight SEALs. And then we lost three more SEALs on the ground. So for a total of 19, I knew all the SEALs. Uh, I knew most of their friends, their family. And uh, that operation caused me a lot of survivor's guilt, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of imposter syndrome. And I carried that with me uh, back to the States. And it um, really played out in my first marriage. Um, I, I struggled to connect with my, my ex-wife, my, my now ex-wife. And that caused me further depression and anxiety. And I got to a place where I was... Uh, not safe on my own. Um, so I think that was the the darkest period of my life that actually lasted about 10, 10 total years. Um, you know, I had some ups and downs during that period, but I would say as a whole, that was a pretty dark period of, of my life. God, I'm really, really sorry for that, John. And just without going into too much here, people are going to have to watch the film Lone Survivor. It is just such a harrowing, harrowing uh real story but were you uh, serving there at the time was it was it a, a team you knew but you weren't yeah. able to be with them yes I, I was serving there at the time and um if you know the story michael murphy was the lieutenant on the ground that was in charge of the ground element um mike and i were flip-flopping the surveillance and reconnaissance missions leading those and and Murph, Michael Murphy, you can call him Murph. Um, he ended up leading that operation. So I ended up being in, in what was called the CJSOTF, CJSOTF, the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. And I was on the radio and on the phones um, observing that operation go down uh, when we ended up getting in contact with Murph and they had been contacted by the enemy. 
um, and then also was on the radio when we got notified of the the helicopter that was shot down. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm really sorry, and I just I just can't imagine what it's like. And for those who are in business who are listening, they go, "Well, look, that's just so detached from what I go through." What what would be because you must have thought of this many times, John. What are the lessons for people in business when they look at a situation like this? Uh, mm. what, what, what would be their takeaways that you'd pass on? Because you must have looked at it from so many angles. Right. Yeah, I, I think as as difficult as that that was, and you know, I also want to acknowledge that it was not just difficult for me. There were many other men that were connected to that operation in some form or fashion, and many other families uh, that were connected to that operation. And uh, you know, how I experienced it pales in comparison to how many others experienced it. Um, that said, it it did affect me. And I believe it ended up serving as the, the bedrock for my ability to maintain my mental health, my mental fitness. I never saw it that way initially. But since then, looking back on it, it, it has been one of the, the hardest things um, that I have experienced and gone through. And because of that, because I am here today, I can look back at that event in the past and say, you know what? I survived for a reason. I believe that I am still alive here for a reason. And two, I also overcame. I overcame and I'm here today. That mountain that I climbed over years ago was one of the biggest mountains that I've ever climbed over, but I got over it mm. and I am here today. So when I look forward and I see these other mountains that are ahead of me, or I don't see them, but I know they're there. Uh, I feel that I am equipped to climb and summit those mountains in the future that I know are inevitably going to come down the, the pipe. Um, so I think that as a business leader, we need to look back on the challenges, the obstacles, the adversity that we've overcome in the past and realize that we made it to this point right here today, we've overcome all those. Mm -hmm. And those mountains that we've climbed and summited are going to empower the future climbs and summits. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I imagine what you had would be a version of PTSD, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's complex PTSD. Yeah. And, and um, I've had a number of uh, special forces uh, officers, uh, and soldiers on this program who either they or their friends, you know, whether they were in the Falklands war or they were fighting the IRA or in fighting Colombian guerrillas, they have had PTSD, which has affected them, their marriages, their marriages didn't survive. Right. And I think, I think everybody sort of glamorizes special forces, but um, a bit like that rather humorous, if we can be humorous in such a, a difficult scenario, but that humorous comment that uh, life, let me let you into a secret about life no one gets out alive. All right. You know, it's, like, <laughs> right. It's, like, it's, it's not a good ending story, but, yeah. um, but in all these experiences, um, the guys in special forces, few of them are still married to the same wife that they started out with. It's just yeah. such a toll on families, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, the military as a, as a whole is there's a fairly high divorce rate. Uh, but yes, within special operations, um, the the deployments that we're on, um, those are hard mentally on the the spouses that are left home. You know, the, they have to pick up the slack as as the the one service member leaves. 
but they also have to continually in their mind wonder what is my spouse doing what's happening um, you know whether it's the battlefield or maybe they're going to germany and uh they're doing a training mission but then they're going out at night drinking and and you know sometimes getting into some fun things but their perception could be less than um stellar uh so mm -hmm. there's there's concern there um then you come back from the deployments you come back from the training overseas and you come back to the states and you're still gone a lot we call it a stateside deployment uh quote unquote because you are gone for training you're gone to go learn how to do the the close quarters combat or close quarters battle you're gone to go do diving uh training down in key west you're gone to do cold weather training in alaska you're gone to do whatever and you're gone a lot and then when you are home you try to inject yourself back into the home life when your spouse has this routine and now you're coming in and saying hey this is how we're going to try to do things and they're like you know what i've got it figured out and i'm okay without you um so there's there's a lot of reasons it divorce is so prevalent within the special operations community i mean those who stay married to their one spouse they are they're an anomaly they're the exception not the mm. rule and it's uh it's sad so quite often I, I get people who reach out to me and they're like, Hey, I want to speak to you about going into seals. I want to, I want to talk about this. And they'll, you know, when they get on the phone with me, you know, it's young guys, when they get on the phone with me, they're like, Hey, can you tell me about the battlefield? Can, can you tell me about this? Can you tell me about the training? And I tell them all that. And then I'm like, Hey, Hey, before we get off the phone, I want to give you a reality check. Mm. Do you have a girlfriend? 99% of them? Yes. Okay, well, don't expect to marry that girlfriend and stay married to her because there's a good chance that you won't. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but there's a good chance that you won't. Also, how do you feel about taking the life of someone? And, you know, that they're like, oh, yeah, I feel okay with it. I don't think you really truly understand what that feels like until you are on the on a weapon and you have somebody in your sights on the other end and you know that you're about to end that person's life and that person they have a life they may have children they may be married and that that takes a toll on us mm. the person who pulls the trigger and takes that person's life and i don't think people realize that when they watch the movies and they play the video games that it's not like you said special operations gets glorified it's uh, it is amazing, and I very much loved my time in the SEAL teams and uh, served with some of the most amazing men and women on this planet. But I also feel that there's a side of special operations that um, is very real and very raw that is very rarely talked about, and yeah. those are the sides that people need to hear before they go into these communities. I think that's so profound what you've just said, and I remember at the time. Uh, I served with the Scots Guard, 2nd Battalion, just after I'd returned from the Falklands War. I went to replace an officer who'd got injured and uh, in the war. Uh, and I served as a platoon commander for two years, and they were a really fine battalion. And, and I remember before I served with them, I thought, oh, I'm so sad I missed the war. I wish I'd been in the war, you know. It sure. sounded, you know, I would have had medals and all this glory, and, and that's what I joined for, to be in war. And yet I saw friends of mine and, you know, one of the guys had half a head blown away. Another guy got a big hole in his leg where a mortar round had just gone through. Others were just damaged psychologically by it. And I thought, do you know what? In some ways I had a narrow escape from what mm -hmm. might have happened to me and others who were on the 
Sir Galahad when this ship, which was full of aluminium, started to burn all around them and guys were scrambling over each other to get up out of the ship, up the ladder. And one guy said, I just, I cannot remember what happened, but I lived and I think I crawled over other people to get up there mm. and maybe pull them oh, off the wow. ladder. And I'm, I'm living with that now that yeah. I might have pulled those people off the ladder. And I was the medic. I was supposed to be saving lives and I was saving my life. Mm. And, and so uh, people can glorify these things, but they don't know what it's like for the guys like you and others who've lived through it and then have to cope with the mental health issues that, that follow. I, I don't know what, uh, what comes for you from that, John. Oh yeah. I think that, you know, the human survival instinct, it's very difficult to overcome that. Um, and the combat, you know, the desire to go and serve and serve your country, serve your fellow human being, um, quickly falls by the wayside when you're in combat, you, you, you suddenly start to try to survive and defend the person that's right next to you. It's not about mm -hmm. serving your country at that point. It's not about serving the flag or the constitution. It's about surviving that battle right there in that moment. And when you are out of it, you realize that you kind of stepped into almost like a, an out of body experience. Mm. And to your friend's point, you know, that I have not a hundred percent, transparency i have never been in a battle where i was scared that i was going to lose my life i know plenty of my friends who have been in much more heated battles than i have mm. i i think i also fell into this narrow window where i for better or for worse um did not see as much combat as uh my friends some of my my fellow seals and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that now. But when I was in the SEAL teams, I'm like, damn it. I want to get into the fight. I want to get into mm -hmm. the fight. And guys will chase the fight. Like, hey, the 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 new hot area is Fallujah. Oh, well, then I want, I want to deploy to Iraq. Oh, now the new hot area is Baka by Iraq. Okay, well, I want to go up there. Now the hot area is whatever. And they continually are trying to chase the fight. Mm -hmm. But they, I don't think they realize what they're chasing. No. Uh, no. So it's, it's, um, it's, in my mind, looking back on it, it's a blessing in disguise that I did not see the combat that I so badly wanted to see, which I know sounds kind of sick and twisted. No, no, it does. Uh, but but it's like, so my sister was an ER nurse. Now, now, I think she works in the ICU now, but, and my mother was a nurse before, and they said the same thing for them, that they never want to, they never want someone to die, Right. But when you have trained for helping someone to live, when you are on the ER nurse staff and you get a call that an ambulance is coming in with a, a gunshot wound or somebody, you're like, okay, now I get to put my training into, like, like I, I get to use the training that I've been put through, right? Mm. Um, and you get this kind of surge of now I have a purpose, mm. um, but you still don't want people to come into the ER. So yeah. it's, it's this weird tension. Same thing with uh, somebody who is trained for combat. You really don't want to go to combat because you don't want people to die, whether that's, you know, your friends next to you or potentially even the enemy. Um, but at the same time, you want to go to combat to put your training into effect. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a weird tension.
It, it is so true. And I was just, uh, my daughter got married this weekend and I was catching up with my cousin. Um, so my nephew, uh, Angus, and he is one of the, in Australia, is in Sydney. As the helicopter doctors, they go in, they fly into a car crash or whatever around Sydney. Yeah. And, and he is the doctor on the scene, you know, wearing his Ray-Bans and just sorting out people on the scene looking terribly yeah. cool. But, but he said, <laughs> it's this, this paradox that you, you want to go and help people. But you don't right. want there to be a crash on the motorway where people are right. dying or losing their legs or their blood. Right. But it's a really, it's the same kind of thing with the military. And then the other thing which I was thinking about as you were speaking is um, uh, you and I both support veterans a lot. And and I uh, raise money, uh, I think I, uh, with the donations, raised about 7,500 7, for uh, Help for Heroes and my wife's charity for violence against women and girls and uh, trafficking. And... Um, it was called the big battlefield bike ride through all the, the, the some of the battlefields, uh, Paris and Bruneval and oh, Dunkirk wow. and Dieppe and, and close to Dunkirk, there was a, the historians took us to a, a, a small barn that was a memorial now. And, and a group of about 120 British soldiers and officers were herded into it, having surrendered to the Germans, but they surrendered to a Waffen SS unit, a death's head unit. Mm. Uh, and these guys put them in the barn and kept taking three out at a time and just shooting them. Now mm. they'd surrendered. So Geneva convention, they should have kept them as prisoners, but they were just right. executing them. And the other soldiers refused to come out. They said, no, we know what you're going to do. We're not coming out. And so they threw grenades, stick grenades into the barn just to blow everybody up. And one of the corporals and one of the sergeants threw themselves onto the grenades. I mean, like, wow. What makes people do that to to kill themselves to save their colleagues? Uh, ultimately, all their colleagues were killed, but apart from a couple who escaped and told the story of the uh, the massacre. And uh, the guy was, uh, uh, I think, he was hung at the end of the war for for his um, crimes, war crimes. But but what makes people do that? And I'm sure, John, you've come across particularly in special forces where people do amazing acts of bravery i mean even in lone survivor people were doing that yeah um to to look after their colleagues their mates their their oppo a any thoughts there yeah we have uh you know michael Mansoor was a another navy seal who did just that he jumped on a grenade to to save his men um and was was killed in the act and then you know um posthumously awarded the the medal of honor mm. um i think that is just the the wiring in the person that is already there they want to serve that's why they joined the military they didn't join it for their ego they didn't join the military to pay for college they joined the military to serve and when that grenade lands next to them and they see that that grenade is probably going to go off and kill all of them anyway or at least severely injure them it is the what is the um utilitarianism right uh, it's the the good of the few is outweighed by the good of the many mm. i think it's the utilitarianism that is wired into them knowing i may and most likely will die jumping on this grenade but one death is better than five mm. um and it's it is so hardwired into them in their service DNA, that there's no overcoming it in that instance. There's no thinking about it. It just happens. Um, whether it's them jumping on a grenade or taking a, a metaphorical grenade for a friend because of a leadership 
mistake that they made, but now you're the one who is being held responsible as a leader. That's the grenade that quite often we have to jump on and we have to be prepared to do that because of uh, the good of the the few is outweighed by the good of the many. That is so true. And and John, you, you're a, a very motivational speaker and you speak at many different uh, business events, things like that. How do you translate that into business? Because, you know, in business, people don't have to die for their job. And yeah. they certainly they normally throw their friend under the bus uh, rather than throw themselves under the bus to save their friend. So, right. so how can we translate that kind of camaraderie and selfless service uh, into business? Yeah, I, I think I like to think about karma. <laughs> like, uh, I, I feel that if you're going to roll someone under the bus uh, for your own good to save your own skin, um, then eventually someone else is going to roll you under the bus. Now, if you end up taking, again, that metaphorical grenade to to save someone else in their career, uh, their role in their business, allow them to continue their livelihood, and maybe you take a sacrifice, you sacrifice your own livelihood temporarily, I think ultimately, and this is could probably sound a little woo-woo to some of the, the business leaders who are listening, but I think karma is going to come back and serve you in the long run. That's your integrity. Coming back to integrity from the very beginning that I mentioned, your integrity, once you give it away, you never get it back. But if you are able to take the accountability and responsibility for mistakes as a leader that other people make and at times have to fall on your own sword or even their sword, I think ultimately you become a better person for it and you're going to end up leading better in the long run. You're going to end up running organizations that are better in the long run, that kind of thing. No, it's really, it's a really good point, John. And and we do, and trustworthiness, you know, I'm, I run a lot of offsites for uh, CEOs and their teams around the world. I've got uh, four later this year, some in North Carolina, some in Seattle, some in Madrid, some in Germany. And um, one of the big things they're all looking for is building trust, trustworthiness between their colleagues. Well, it's this kind of thing where you don't claim the credit from somebody else as if it was your own piece of work. You you actually right. humbly give it to other people or right. think about the first team, which is your boss's team and your colleagues there rather than my precious, my little ring, my golem, my, you know, <laughs> it's all mine, it's all mine. And they get, they get, the worst leaders get very selfish. You are, are really uh, very focused on being a great dad and family is very important to you. What piece of advice do you wish you had when you started out, when you were a young 16 to 18 year old John McCaskill, that you'll yeah. pass on to other people listening for their children, that this matters at this age, but that doesn't matter from your experience? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Don't peak in high school. I think that's one of the the biggest ones. I remember, um, you know, I, I, again, I was a track and cross country runner, um, and in Louisiana at the time, and I think it's still to this day this way. Uh, the football team and the baseball team were like the the heroes of the school, and here I am being a, a track and cross country runner, and we were very very good at what we did. Um, but we weren't the the popular kids. And I wanted, you know, like most kids wanted to, I wanted to be a popular kid. I wanted to be in, in with the cool crowd and I wasn't. Um, and looking back on it, the, some of those quote unquote cool kids um, haven't 
attained anything higher than what they attained in high school. And I feel that if, if I was able to go back and tell the young 15 year old, 16 year old John, one thing it would be, Hey, you're going to be okay. You're going to have success after high school. You're going to have a beautiful family. And uh, that's, that's an important thing to know as a young child, uh, because I think a lot of anxiety and depression in, in youth these days is they see on social media, the, the quote unquote success of their classmates. And they, they compare themselves to their classmates. When you and I were growing up, we had to compare ourselves to, you know, the handful of classmates that we had. Now you're comparing yourself to the world. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, if, if kids these days know that what they're doing in their 16, 17, 18 year old ages, uh, it may lay the foundation, but it's not the peak of their lives and they can overcome that. That's, that's an important thing to, to understand. No, great advice. Thanks, John. We'll, we'll go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass and sort of quick fire tip from you, from your experience. We talked a lot about moral quotient. You and I talked about trust, learning continuously and bewaring the big egos on the battlefield. Any any final tip you'd give on integrity and moral quotient? Yeah. Uh, I, I, again, that integrity, once you give it away, you never get it back. I mm. think that's that's the that's the key piece with integrity. Um, and that could be as simple as stealing a newspaper, like I said, or it could be something as big as lying about your organization and embezzling funds or something. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you mentioned it, trust uh, is is huge within an organization, within uh, the culture of a team. If you cannot have trust, then you don't have a team. Yeah. And once you lose trust, it's next to impossible to get it back. Um, so and, and trust and integrity are inextricably intertwined. So I think uh, that maintaining your integrity is going to give your people trust in you. And that trust goes both ways. And as you develop and maintain that trust, you and your organization are going to thrive. I love that one. I'll, I'll probably take away from what you just said there. No trust, no team. Um, Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Purpose is the next one, John. A uh, sense of meaning and purpose in your life. You know, we talked about serving your country and certainly as a Navy SEAL, a real sense of purpose. And now you're helping people uh, with Frogman mindfulness, this idea of helping people cope with uh, all the stresses and strains of life and, and having more mindfulness in what they do. What is a tip you'd give about uh, what gives your life meaning and purpose now mm. and that you'd pass on that might help others listening? Yeah, for me, my I've done a lot of work in this area, and my purpose is to help others live their best lives. And I think that if you don't know your purpose, then you are kind of just wandering through this life, and you're moving from point A, birth, to point B, death, and not really experiencing the thing in between, and that is the life that we live. Um I have definitely wandered around without purpose before, and I felt like a hollow shell of a man that I'd been before. But once I was able to refine my purpose, not refine, but refined it, then uh, I felt that I was living a life worth living. And that purpose, again, uh, I, I believe I was able to find it in the deep introspective work that I've been doing, that reflective work that I've been doing with mindfulness and meditation. And if uh, if you're looking for your purpose, you haven't found it yet, spending quiet time by yourself, journaling, doing that deep introspective work, that can be incredibly helpful in finding that why or finding your purpose. Yeah, I love that one. And um, 
Just got my two dogs who are happily playing with each other. So if you have some noise in the background, it's Archie and Willow. Um, it was the lovely one on the gravestone. So if it was, you know, Jonathan Bowman Perks, born 1962, yeah. dash to when I die. Yeah. It, it's what's what's in the dash between right. when you're born to when you die, what you make of that dash between birth and death, exactly. which exactly. is really great. Uh, health is the next one. And dear to your heart, how do you keep yourself healthy mentally and physically these days? Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked mentally and physically, because so much of what people believe is health is is just physically. And I think overall holistic wellness is is the definition of health. So physical health, mental health, spiritual health, uh, professional health. I th- I think that's important to understand. And what I do for myself is I try to, and we're going to talk about this a little bit at the end here in a second, but I try to understand that health is not an all or nothing thing. A lot of the time people will set a goal of going out and working out for an hour and a half every single day. And then life gets in the way and they only have enough time to work out for 20 minutes. Well, that 20 minutes isn't the hour and a half. So in their mind, they're like, well, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do that 20 minutes. So health is not a switch. Health is a dial. And if you're able to stay consistent with it, staying consistent as you can realistically, then you're going to reach your goals. It's not about going and working out for an hour and a half every single day or working out three days a week for an hour and a half. It's about staying realistic. Maybe it's working out 10 minutes every single day. That's the consistency. Maybe it's not about eating nothing but low carb or zero carb food every single day, but maybe it's about eating fewer carbs every single day, right? So it's, it's a dial, not a switch and my health. I am not perfect with it and that's okay because I am at, at times an all or nothing person. And when I, when I see that I'm not perfect then I'm like, well, I might as well eat a whole pizza and wash it down <laughs> with a gallon of Coke and, and have a giant ice cream for dessert. Instead of that, I'm like, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay with not being perfect. And I'm I'm consistent is the key. I do love that. It's really, uh, really helpful. Um, this this idea of the dialing up and dialing down and and just getting some in there rather than all right. or nothing. Uh, right. Emotional intelligence is a, a key area, which in many ways in the military, we weren't really given much credit for emotional intelligence. It's just like right. it was resilience, it was, you know, are you clever? You work hard, but but you've learned, as I have, just how important it is to, to learn that. How have you learned to listen well to others, John? Because you're a very good yeah. listener, I found. How have you learned that? I, I think, uh, again, some of that comes with mindfulness, being quiet in your mind, understanding that listening is not me preparing to answer your questions. It's me hearing your questions, allowing you to finish your thought, your statement, and then coming up with the response rather than you know, hearing five words out of your mouth and then starting to develop a response off the bat. So active listening uh, comes through being mindful. Uh, You know, mindfulness, when you hear that term, people often think that that means exclusively meditation, but you can have a mindful conversation. And a mindful conversation is what we're having right now. And I'm trying to be very active in listening to the questions that you're asking and then formulating the answer rather than listening just to answer. So I think... um, Mindfulness comes into play there for sure. And then marriage counseling has, has mm-hmm. helped me out a lot as well. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a great skill. I've I've done that too. I've done that too. Um, CQ is cognitive, collective, and cultural intelligence. How do you get on with people who are very different from you, John? And you often mm. meet people who are very different from you. How do you get on with those who are very different? Yeah. From you? Well, I think that's that's actually you know you you hear this um, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion used quite often here in the states these days, and and in my most people's minds, they believe that diversity, equity, and inclusion means that you're going to bring in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the form of different races, different cultures, different genders, um, different religious beliefs. And I do believe in that. I do. But I also believe that diversity, I mean, I could have somebody walk through this door that looks just like me, you know, a, a six foot three white man, 230 pounds, they look just or very much like me, but they could think completely differently. And I think that is where we're missing the mark on the diversity piece is diversity in thinking and diversity in personalities. I Last week, we ran a leadership conference. And one of the first things we did was a see me um, personality test. And it's that's C, the letter C dash ME personality test. And it's done with these different cards and you kind of get grouped into colors and these colors see the world differently, manage the world differently, lead differently. And it was really interesting to see how these different colors work with the other colors. And I think that I actually get along better with people who think differently than me. I don't want to be in an echo chamber where I'm like, this is how we're going to do things. And then all I hear is, okay, this is how we're going to do things. What I want to do, and I come come back to the, the leader that I mentioned at the beginning, Mike Provost, I would say, this is how we're going to do things. And he's like, hey, sir, maybe we could look at it this way and you know, maybe think with the other side of our brain, think of a different creative solution. I think that's what sets cultures up for success is having that diversity in thought and personality. Yeah, I really love that. No, very true. Um, and and people, you know, just you need that diverse thinking. Otherwise, you're going to get the Bay of Pigs all over again, where everybody goes, yes, <laughs> Mr. President. Exactly, um, exactly. RQ resilience is, is clearly one that you've spent all your life on resilience. If you were to give one top tip for others to listen to on resilience, what would your top tip on resilience be? Yeah, I, I would say read the book Unbroken with Louis Zamperini. Um, the the U.S. Olympic runner that ended up going into World War II as a as a gunner on a on a bomber and was shot down over the Pacific Ocean, survived for 47 days at sea with little to no food, little to no water, being shot at by the enemy, overcoming sharks in the bad weather, and then only survives all that only to go to pr prisoner as a prisoner of war uh, for two years, and then at the end of that came back to the states and uh, initially drank himself into a stupor, but then found himself forgiving the enemy, forgiving, forgiving the people who ran the prisoner camp. Um, and I think that book, um, he is the very definition of resilience, understanding that uh, resilience is not not getting knocked down. Resilience is getting knocked down and then getting back up and then learning why you got back up or rather learning why you got knocked down and then and then being better forward in the future. So I think that's uh, that's the key to resilience is understanding it's not about not getting knocked down. 
No, that's, that's beautifully put. Now, we, we, we're coming towards the end of our time. I'm going to ask you about a favorite book and then your top tip. But anything else that you'd like to mention, John, because there's so many things that we could have talked about, but anything that we haven't covered that you and I talked about before that you'd love to to share with people as some wisdom and experience? I, I would like to just say that um, quite often we are our own worst enemies. We don't give ourselves enough credit for the journey that we've been on. And we look at everyone else's journey and we think they are better, they are stronger, they are smarter than we are. And we need to start giving ourselves that self-compassion for the journey that we have explored and then giving ourselves credit for, again, the mountains that we have climbed so that we can feel stronger and more authentic and more courageous, more confident in our lives moving forward. I, I, I love that whole area. I did the Hoffman Institute program, which I, I recommend to you if you get the chance, John. It, it's a life changer. Um, that. Yeah, Hoffman Institute um, uh, in America, it's a big, big thing, but it's a seven week full immersion program. Uh, sorry about the background noise of the dogs having a good fight here. I don't hear it at all. I, 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 okay, great. I can't quite reach them, so I'm going to have to let them get on with scrapping. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the Hoffman program was so good. And one of the things was understanding what went on and your upbringing and the experiences you had, then having compassion for the people that they did the best they could and yourself particularly, and then finding new techniques and new ways of, of doing things, seeing the world differently. Right. The, the right. learning um, Favorite book. And then would you introduce yourself uh, after that with your top tip, who, who you are and what your top leadership tip is? Sure. So I don't know that I can say a favorite book, but one of my favorites is The Culture Code by Dan Coyle. Uh, it is so well done in the, the things that people are looking for in an organization and how an organization can foster those things, um, how to build a culture that is successful, and then as a leader, how to accept things when you mess up. Like the, mm. some of the most important words that you can say as a leader are, I screwed up and wow. ad admitting that to your people. And that's covered in depth in that book and why it's so important to be able to admit that. As far as who I am in my my leadership, my last leadership lesson, uh, I uh, John McCaskill, <laughs> retired Navy SEAL, served for 24 total years, 17 of which was in the SEAL teams. And now I am teaching mindfulness and meditation and doing some executive coaching and keynote speaking. And that's through my program that, that you mentioned before, Frogman Mindfulness. And you can find that at frogmanmindfulness.com. And as far as what I believe is one of the most important leadership lessons is, again, that switch in the dial is understanding that leadership is not a switch. You're not on as a leader or off as a leader. You're, you're basically on the whole time. And you're just tuning that up or tuning it down. And that is as far as leading your people, because there are going to be times when they need you desperately. And there are also going to be times when they just kind of need you to take a, a seat in the back and they're going to run things. But at the same time, it's tied to the growth mindset. I think that's critical to have as a leader is knowing that you don't know everything. You have to be a learn it all, not a know it all. Mm -hmm. And in order to learn it all, you have to understand that you learn little things every day, learn little things about the people you lead, learn little things about yourself, learn little things about the organization, get comfortable being uncomfortable, get comfortable being scared. And if you do all that every single day, just a little bit, you're going to be better 
every single day. So ultimately it's the dial versus the switch and the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. Wow. Well, Joe McCaskill, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Uh, continue inspiring and touching the lives of so many. Um, and and I'm just so grateful to you, A, for your service, but B, for what you continue to do to inspire others. Thanks, John. An honor and a privilege, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.